socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally, 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 Sally Welcome Sally, Sally. to episode 50 of You Don't Have to Yell. It's the bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here and... If you've listened to this podcast before, you know the number one mission of YDHTY is to bring about proportional representation in the United States, with the idea being you'll see lower level of partisan vitriol and open the door for multi-party democracy. And today's guest has dedicated much of his career compiling data to back that case up. Barney Thomas of Valdosta State University, an author of The Demise and Rebirth of American Third Parties, has spent much of his career researching the causes for America's bias towards a two-party system, the results of said bias, and the potential ramifications of our country continuing down the road of hyper-partisanship and division. And in today's episode... He lays out a very clear, very data-driven case for why we are the lovely bunch of kooks we are and gives a fairly scary example of what could happen to our democracy with just a small shift in the popular vote. It's a fascinating conversation. I'll be back at the end with some final thoughts. The first question I had, entirely rhetorical, is where have you been all my life? Because the 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 chapter of your book that we're going to talk that we're going to talk about is pretty much has validated everything I've been thinking and talking about for the last two odd years, um, which is you know effectively that that we have a system that is is stilted in many ways to uh, two parties or has a bias and um, and and you know I, I guess maybe to 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 kick things off or to kind of dig into um dig into your your earlier book um really like in in your your in your research it it has determined that of course there is there is definitely a built-in bias number one to two parties and number two that the level at which that bias favors a given party kind of fluctuates over time is that did i get that right or no Oh, you totally got that right. And it's, and, and where I'm probably distinct from a lot of people who study this stuff is that, is that the, the, the running theory for the last, I would say 70 years has been, oh, the system is so rigged against third parties. It's never going to be possible because of all of these different factors that, that work against them. And my research has shown, well, there is, in fact, a a structural bias against third parties, Mm -hmm. but it isn't as great and it isn't a kitchen sink uh, that I often refer to this as the kitchen sink theories on third parties where there's a million reasons and I can give you a million reasons more. Mm -hmm. But in fact, that it's it's yeah, it's structured in a way where the system is biased against third parties, Mm -hmm. but third parties in America uh, can in fact gain more of a foothold again, uh, and some of it is things that that nobody can control, and we can't even predict because we don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But part of it is is strategic questions. Mm-hmm. So so yeah, so it's it's um, 
a lot of people talk about it being biased and and I guess the the feathers that I've ruffled have been for me to say well the biases aren't what we thought they were before they're okay. a little bit different and they're things that 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 we can actually deal with and so what are you know what are I guess what did people think the biases were and what has your research found they are Okay, the, the main bias that people have studied have been state election laws. And I know this is one that you, you've been interested in that you've talked mm-hmm. about, which is, is ballot access laws. So ballot yeah. access laws, right? They're, they're the states put up these restrictions that if you want to run as a start a third party, you have to get all these signatures and, and you have to jump through all these hoops that we set up for you. And there is absolutely no doubt in terms of of tracing this because me and and my 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 co-author at the time Matt Heineman had gone through and and traced these since the like 1890s and it's really clear that the state legislators had had created these barriers and made it more and more difficult as the century went on. Mm-hmm. But what I discovered is that even so, there's virtually no relationship between how third parties uh, succeed or don't succeed and how bad the, the ballot access laws are, okay. and, which came as a complete surprise. And so because I had just assumed that, well, this is what people have been saying for, for 50 years and it makes sense, so it's got to be this. And then I did the statistical tests, and it's like, well, no, it's not this. Then more digging, and what I've discovered is I'm not the only one who's found that. I think I found it with more data, but other political scientists have also looked at this and have had the same, wait a minute, this is not actually working. So there's a group of people who have separately come to this same same conclusion. Uh, mm. Me, I think, with more detail, maybe. So okay. then – that following that, then it became, okay, what really is going on here? That's kind of where I, I, I went with it. And what it seems like to me is what seems to be pushing it is the big change in American politics related to this has been the rise of television and radio and the fact that it's privately owned. And the reason why the privately owned is important is because to run campaigns today, you have to raise a lot of money and Mm. you have to somehow climb your way into the system. If you're in Canada or the UK, they have have differences in the way that they, they set it up, but still it's easier if you're a smaller party. It is certainly not easy in the United States. Hmm. Hmm. And, and, has so and that's that actually maybe answers my uh the next question i had which is you know i know when you when you kind of chart the the bias and and to be clear for everyone listening you know when i'll when i'll refer to bias in this episode what it really means is maybe the level of responsiveness the popular vote has to a particular party's uh, congressional apportionment. So, uh, in an ideal scenario, 50% of the population votes Republican, 50% of the house of representatives is Republican. Uh, in your case, of course, you cite that, you know, very often that'll favor one party or the other. So one party actually doesn't necessarily lose as much as they should if the other party gains votes and correct me, does that more or less sum up 
Yeah, the, yeah. The I mean, I'll, I'll repeat it since it's such an in, important point, but it's, yeah. it's the bias really is, is if you're voting for somebody, uh, some party, but if 40% voting for that party, but only the, the party only gets 30% of the vote, that's a bias against you. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you happen to be voting for a party that's, um, let's say you're, you're supporting a party and they get 30% of the vote, but then they wind up getting 60% of the seats, mm-hmm. well, that's a bias in your favor. So it's a mathematical thing. Now, just to clarify for any political scientists hearing this, they'll say, well, there's also a, a term for that. It's disproportionality. And the difference between the bias and, and disproportionality, just disproportional means it's not proportional. You know, it's that, that the vote and the, the seats don't match up. And the point of bias is just to take that a little bit farther and say, yes, but what we have in structured in a system is a repeated bias against the same parties over and over again within a particular period. If we really want to geek out over the topic, you know, proportionality, if you had uh, very fine-tuned districts, proportionality could actually swing wildly one way or the other, depending on the election year, whereas bias is more of a long-term trend, correct? That's right. And proportionality is you take the whole thing and you count it up. And yep. then and they have different equations that people use. Yeah. And then it's, oh, the, 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 it's disproportional this way. We don't really know unless we look at it ourselves, but this is disproportionate. Where bias is, it's no, it's this group versus that group. So you could have a, what I sometimes call a, a two-party bias, which means that sometimes the system supports Republicans more, sometimes the system supports Democrats more. And yeah. sometimes it's because people are rigging the system. And sometimes it just happens. A great example that I learned was New Jersey's representative map, which is disproportional, but was actually, oddly enough, designed with districts that were more favorable to Republicans than any prior district map. But by the nature of the political climate in New Jersey, that meant that, uh, that you know, districts could sway wildly in one direction or the other. One of the most interesting things I found in your work was that, so in the early part of the 20th century, the, the concept of a third party, there were actually viable third parties, right? Yes. Not, yeah. not in the same way that you have, have viable third parties in, let's say, the UK, but the answer is yes. They were viable in that they didn't win many seats, but they were very, very disruptive. Mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. often would get, you'd have these sudden waves of support for third parties where, where suddenly they would be, let's say, 10%, let's say 20% of the, of the vote and, and kind of force their way into the system that way. And then they yeah. would disappear. But, but during the period, but they would just, it would keep happening. So it mm-hmm. would be, it would, okay, it would ha- happen this decade. And then things would calm down a little bit and then give it a few years and suddenly again it would occur. And this was an important part of American politics up until, let's say, the 1920s. So okay. we, we really did have much stronger third parties in the past than we have now. And, and so it sounds to me then like the third parties weren't so much a reasonable opposition to either the Republicans and the Democrats in so much as they were a disruptive force 
that would tilt the scales and then cause maybe one of one or more of the parties to pivot. Is that right or no? That, I think that's right. I think it's it's not. I mean, if 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 there's if there's something that I support, it, it's multi party democracy. I think there should be, mm-hmm. let's say, at least four parties. I, yeah. If you could split both of them in half, I'd be happy. But we haven't had that. What we've had instead was they would suddenly they would come out and sometimes they would attack one party more than the other. Usually, whoever was uh, more dominant wherever they happened to be, mm-hmm. and then the major parties would see the threat and then they would often respond with, "Okay, we're giving in to whatever it is you're pushing," and mm-hmm. then and then the third party would recede. And so that was the way that they had impact on on policy. Right. Uh, so a lot of things that we take for granted today were pushed by third parties a uh, hundred years ago. And to get back to something you said earlier, too, I know you mentioned that the advent of mass media has almost built a moat around campaigning uh, because, of course, you need to now raise a lot of money to to be visible on on the airwaves. Um, is that more? I guess that it doesn't sound like that brought about the demise of third parties, though. It just sort of made it a lot tougher for them to resume their historical role of tilting elections. Is that am I right or wrong there? I think so, because if you look at third party support and third party activity, it actually declined starting around 1920. It was third parties were almost completely dead in the 1950s. And then they started rising again in the late 60s. And so we actually are seeing a period of third parties rising. They haven't had the kind of impact that they had 100 years ago mm-hmm. uh, or more than 100 years ago. But, but they've definitely been showing a, a long-term uh, rise. So I don't think uh, – you think of it like a U, right? With the, mm-hmm. with the bottom of the U is right around 1950. Now, here's the interesting thing about this U is that it's pretty much exactly the same U that we're seeing for several other things, right? So one of them is what they call partisan polarization. It's, it's you know, Democrats and Republicans hate each other now. Mm-hmm. But Democrats and Republicans didn't hate each other in the 1950s, and they really weren't that much different from each other. So you had conservative Democrats, you had liberal Republicans, and they compromised and they got along. And there was this, by American politics standards, this weird period of, of, of people compromising and so yes. on. Right. I mean, it's funny. Everyone says, oh, we're in a terrible period. And it's like, well, actually, weirdly enough, we're actually going back to what was normal. The yeah. 1950s was the odd time. Now, nobody really knows what's causing that you – Right. There's a lot of debate uh, among the people who are or the biggest experts on this. They really disagree with each other a lot. But I will tell you two other things that follow that pattern are income inequality. So income inequality was particularly low in the 1940s and 1950s. Mm-hmm. And the other one is immigration levels. Right. So so there is. We don't know. So, in other words, what happened was there was clamps put down on immigration in the nineteen, you know, uh, around nineteen twenties and all, and then and then in the sixties things opened up, and now we have that. Now, which of these and how these are affecting it, uh, you know, p- uh, this partisan polarization, we don't know. 
But what I can say and where I would go with this is that the contention of politics has been going up a lot again. And Mm. as the contention goes up and people are becoming more unhappy, right, they become more and more open to, well, why don't I consider voting for a third party candidate, you know, because Mm -hmm. I'm sick of these guys or. The other version of it is, well, within the party, I'm going to support someone who's not in the mainstream. I'm going to vote for Donald Trump, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm a Republican, or I'll vote for Bernie Sanders if I'm a Democrat. So, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's that's great. It's there's so much to talk about here. I think one of the interesting things is it was I think episode four, I want to say, or maybe episode three of this podcast we dove into the data on immigration and what we found is there's a level of immigration where people start complaining about it. And I believe I will, and I'll have to go back and look It's somewhere between 13 and 15% is when it becomes an issue all of a sudden, when you have uh, 13 to 15% of the population foreign born and, and we're kind of at that level right now. Um, again, it's kind of a chicken or egg question because um, typically when you have, mass levels of 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 immigration there's also a lot of other economic effects that go with it that could be aggravating it but um now i, I want to get back to the issue of contention because one of the concepts i've really hung my hat on as i've thought about this is the whole concept of duverger's law right which which affects which which and again correct me if i'm wrong you know effectively says that if you are in a system a system like ours where we have a first past the post system of electing candidates where you only need one more vote than second place to win office um, that people tend to line up against the top two or the two folks most likely to win either first or second choice. Right. What, what role does that play in the way we vote, but also maybe in the, the the lack of support or or the lack of a third party's ability to really gain a, a, a foothold of significant political power. Okay, I'll 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 tell you how where I think most political scientists see this, those who are experts on this, and then where I differ from them. Okay. So a lot of these a lot of people support the the concept of Duverger's law, which says, and you you said it well, I'll just just kind of repeat what you said. If you have a first past the post system, so if you're doing one where you go in, you're in a district and you vote for one person and then whoever gets the most votes wins, that when you have that system, it favors the two-party system. And Duverger's argument, he didn't actually come up with this, but he gets all the credit. Uh, (laughs) But Duverger's argument was that there's a few reasons, but the main one is that in that situation, you don't want to waste your vote on a third party. Because if, you know, if you're a libertarian and you vote for the libertarians, well, and let's say you, you, you love the libertarians, you like the Republicans, you hate the Democrats, uh, then what will happen is you vote libertarian because that's who you really like. And then, and then all you're really doing is taking away votes for the Republicans, which increases the chance of the Democrats winning. So you realize, well, that's irrational, so I'm going to stop doing that. And because of that, the libertarians can never gain enough support to really climb into the system. Mm-hmm. That's Duverger's law. Now, uh, which, again, is one of those, if you think about it, it's like, well, that makes sense. But the way I see it is that 
that's not really what's causing the advantage to uh, to the two big parties. That there are some people who do that, but most people are basically voting for whoever they like the most, and they're they're justifying it in their mind however they they want to. If you're a libertarian, if you really like the libertarians, you'll vote for the libertarians under most mm-hmm. circumstances. Yeah, right. This is this is basically it. Um, my theory on this and one of the ways i'm going with this is that it comes again down to electoral bias if if the thing about being one of the top two parties is not only are you you know so you gain a bunch of support but once you gain that support you gain all kinds of resources right if you're in government you can affect policy you Mm -hmm. can get yourself on tv you can do all and then people start handing you money so that you can run for re-election and so Anytime you have that electoral bias or anytime you have a system where somebody's winning over someone else, that victory, generally speaking, puts you in a better position to win next time. Now, here's the thing. Either way you look at it, there's some level of bias in the system towards, towards promoting the top parties. That mm. if you have first past the post. So in a sense, I'm arguing now the details but the bottom line is is the where I think Duverger is right, overstated but right, is that this system does benefit the top two parties. Got it, got it. So it's not it, you're saying it's not so much the the way things are structured at the at the local level, let's say when we speak of congressional districts, but it's more just the advantages of winning are so great. In terms of again, campaign funding, access to airwaves, ability to affect policy, that there's a there's well, a power of incumbency that really really helps. Is that right? It's 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 two things. It's the mm-hmm. first one is that if you have look, let's say your your party has has ten percent support, right? Yeah. Which is not a bad amount of support in the country. Ten percent is good. Or should mm-hmm. be. But if you're in our type of system and if you've got 10% support and it's basically 10% of uh, support across the country, you're going to win zero seats. Yes. Which, right. It's, it, you know, whereas if it was proportional representation, you'd wind up with 10% of the seats, about, probably even yeah. more, probably, because of the, of the math. And so, so what happens is that here you come along in this system and you get your 10% support and you got nothing to show for it because you've won nothing. But that also means that you, you know, who's going to give you money because you can't affect policy. And mm-hmm. well, you know, at this point it's like, well, they lost, so they're not that important. So let's not pay attention to them. And so it produces a situation where, where you can't really muscle your way into the system. Yeah. So it is structural. Now, here's the, the thing to know is that in terms of third parties, the, they have been rising steadily over the last century in, in places like Canada and the UK, India even. People keep thinking, oh, it's, you know, India is the great multi-party democracy and, it, and there definitely are a lot of parties, but the smaller parties have been gaining ground in India. Uh, Australia. Okay. So it's we're the oddballs that that uh, we're this large and we still don't have third parties winning. So even if, in other words, even if you have first past the post, 
apparently that's not enough to produce a two-party system necessarily. You're mm-hmm. more likely to have it, but not necessarily. Yeah, and that's that's what I've noticed is if you do look at, again, Canada, the UK, for example, both first-past-the-post systems, they do have viable uh, third parties or viable minor parties. Conversely, if you look at a more proportional system, such as, you know, Germany's a model that I really admire. I really like Germany too. Yeah, okay, good. I want to get, I want to get to Germany we'll a little later a on. Minute, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But, but, you know, Germany still has a, a center right and center left party that seem to consume the majority of the vote anyway. And it's really just, and, and I, I, I would imagine that, or, or how do I put this? There's nothing, there doesn't seem to be anything about first past the post that prohibits uh, third parties, nor is there anything about a proportional system that gives them strength, it doesn't seem. And, and am I misinterpreting I, I ag- that? Or? Oh, no, I would agree with that completely. Now, I'm yeah. not saying everybody would agree with that completely, but I would agree with that completely. Okay, well, you're the, you're think, the only one here, so. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, well, the, the, a lot of the political scientists who who are specialists in this will refer to i almost feel compelled to say this because you know they'll be ready to pull out their hair in outrage that <laughs> i'm saying this about the uk because they'll say no it's a they call it a two and a half party system and okay. a two and a half party system it's not like denmark or the netherlands where you have have a range of parties it's where you have two big parties and then smaller ones but they're still stronger and to me this is okay yes you're right the 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 uk does have have two strong parties mm-hmm. but but this two and a half party system thing is a way of trying to patch up a theory that might be starting to slowly fall apart. Then mm. it's kind of like, well, okay, you're right. It isn't really a two party system like it used to be. You know, Duverger said it would always go back to being a two party system. Well, he wasn't quite right. Even he admitted that he wasn't quite right. But, but what you're seeing instead is a system that is effectively a multi-party democracy which we are not and then if you take other countries yeah within within the proportional representation group there's a range of ways that those work too so yeah you definitely have if you have first past the post you are more likely to have two strong parties that is but 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 then within that there's a lot of variation do you think in the U.S., at least, that contributes to the level of vitriol in the political dialogue. Because when I look at kind of how the major parties differentiate themselves in this country, uh, it's typically by latching on to these very hard and fast identity issues that people really get touchy about. So I think guns is a great example. Uh, abortion is another one. Um, obviously, race is coming into play right now uh is that due to the 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 nature of the political calculus of parties trying to differentiate themselves in a two-party system or is it something uniquely american about our willingness to just hate each other for lack of a better word I I think that that the the when you have only two parties you're more likely to have this this level of conflict, hmm. it it starts becoming a a zero sum game. 
you know, it's the anything that the other guy, the side gets is a loss for us. So they wind up being more likely to have the kind of conflict that we have right now. And mm. they're more likely. And, and, and a lot of it is also recently that, and it's a really, I mean, Republicans figured this out and decided that, you know what, we're, we're actually better off playing to our base. We're, mm-hmm. we're better off really focusing in on these issues and rile peopling up so that, so that they show up to the polls. And for a while, that, that worked for them. Uh, so, so there is something. It isn't necessarily going to be that way because, mm-hmm. again, if you go back half a century, this level of division wasn't there. It mm. used to be you had pro-choice Republicans and you had, had pro-life Democrats, which you really don't have today. So the divisions are, are – but, but it does increase the probability of it. Yeah. And, you know, one of the interesting things I, I found in your, in your work, too, was when you look at that bias – in the House of Representatives. And you look at how it in the beginning, again, when we look at the beginning of the 20th century, the bias favors Democrats and really doesn't start at, to edge up uh, to favor Republicans until after 2000. And even then, that that bias is relatively light, historically speaking. Um, the, the, the interesting thing I saw there is, in a lot of ways, it parallels my understanding of the political realignment that was going on in the South when you had uh, a, a group of reliably Southern Democrats gradually start to ref- def- defect to the Republican Party over the Democrats' position on desegregation. Do you feel that played any role in that rebalancing at all? And maybe like, you know, around the period of 1950, you were as likely to have a segregationist Democrat on or a segregationist on either side of the aisle. I know this is kind of a half cock theory, but I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that. No, I think that well, that was that was my first thought when when I saw that was well, maybe this is entirely because of the South. Yeah, and so I tested it, and and it's not entirely because of the oh. South. And so right. I mean, that's the love. I lo- but but it doesn't change the fact that that what it what is probably the key thing in your what you're saying. Mm-hmm. is is uh, American politics historically uh, has always had a pro-rural bias. I know people mm-hmm. think, oh, no, the, the rural areas are the ones being, you know, ignored and so on. But actually, structurally, you know, if your vote is going to count more, generally speaking, if you live in, in a rural area, it just is just a math of it, especially that's true in the places like the Senate. But yeah. historically, we've sound, seen that with the House. Now, I haven't uh, gone back and teased that out yet. But if you're going to ask me for a guess as to why the bias shifted, well, the rural vote shifted to the Republican Party around the same time that the bias towards the Republican Party uh, started. And so okay. this movement is probably has something to do with that, exactly the realignment you're talking about. Now, the, the second thing what we have to say is, is that what you saw, especially after, the, after 2010, is this sudden jump in bias towards the Republicans. And, and that is not entirely, but a 
big part of that is is almost definitely gerrymandering. So Republicans do it more than Democrats, basically. Okay. And is that just the current state of affairs, or has that been the historical norm going back to the the early 1900s? Well, the if you, are you asking about the gerrymandering? Yeah, or? yeah. I mean, gerrymandering has really became is is a bigger issue now. Uh, first of all, it's it, it it used to be what they would do is they would write districts where where you know talk about rural bias where if uh, I'll take a Georgia example since it was it's really Tennessee was the famous case but but we'll do Georgia since map wise it's easy mm-hmm. uh, but if you have eight districts or ten districts. But then what you do is you put Atlanta into one district and then you draw the other ones. And suddenly what happens if you're in a rural area? uh, Well, if you're in an urban area, you get one representative, but there's 10 times as many people. So Mm, this was one of the ways that they they, that was the main way that they used to bias the system in the past. And the Supreme Court finally said, "Okay, okay, you have to cut it out. You can't do that anymore. And so now all the districts have to within the state have to have the same population. So then they figured, okay, how how can we do this? Yes, there's been gerrymandering all along, but then they started saying, okay, well, let's start redrawing the map. We have to redraw the maps anyway. Let's do it in a way that benefits us personally. The mm-hmm. difference between now, the primary difference between now and 10 years ago and especially 2030 is they're just a lot better at it. And the reason they're a lot better at it, they can buy software. They can look at it and say, oh, okay, here is a district. They you know, I mean, a- anyone with a background in with that data, background in software development with that data, can go ahead and set it up so that you wind up with districts that way benefit your party. So that's why gerrymandering has been. We've been, they've been talking about, oh, gerrymandering is going up. They used to be they're like, well, is that even having an effect? We don't really know. And now it's like, oh my God, yes, it is so having an effect now. Hey, everyone. It's the mid-show break, or as I like to call it, my weekly plea for you to recruit more folks just like you to get involved. Now, you listen to YDHTY because you're tired of the state of affairs in America, and you know we need better choices than the Coke or Pepsi option our two-party system delivers. Either that, or you're really, really high and haven't realized that I'm not Joe Rogan yet. Either way... We can do this by taking action at the state level, and the goal of this podcast is to get enough people like us together so we can have an impact. And I need more shining crazy diamonds like yourselves to get involved in the conversation, and I need your help to do so. So right now, on your phone, or whatever contraption you're listening to this on, I know we just released the podcast on vinyl, share YDHTY with your network. If you want to do a Facebook post or a tweet or take an ad out in the paper, I'm cool with that too. But the sharing part's super easy, super effective, and you don't have to get up from where you are now to do so. Now, we can either settle for the status quo or we can move towards a more perfect union. So consider that share your lazy act of patriotism for the day. As always, I appreciate your support. And now, back to the show. Last month episode, or I should say an episode in May, um, uh, episode 42, for those who want to go back and check it out, I, I spoke with someone from Common Cause, and he was telling me how just the, the mixture of big data and software and the ability to parse it 
meant that people redrawing districts could look at everything from newspaper subscriptions to club memberships to, I mean, any sort of data to, to discern how are these people going to vote. Um, and, you know, in today's environment, uh, obviously, you, you, one could argue, you know, things like higher ratings for Fox News would tell you a different story than higher ratings for MSNBC in a particular market, which is crazy. Um, another one that comes to mind, and this one's even, I think for anybody who hasn't looked into this, look into Cambridge Analytica and how good they were at figuring this out. Because, I mean, they were, I don't know, have, did you, have, did you study them at all and, or have you looked at them at all in your research or? No, I've, 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 I've read about them a bit in, in the newspaper, but I haven't done actually the, the formal research on them. But, but everything you're saying is right. Yeah, I mean, fascinating. They they were responsible for all those quizzes that went out, like which Disney princess are you, or you know, if you were a beer, which would you be, or whatnot. And people would fill out these quizzes, and little did they know they were giving away the rights to all their data. And so Cambridge Analytica collected all this, and then used this as a way to identify who was persuadable, and then right. actually targeted them. So you know, I think to I won't I won't go on and be the one. <laughs> be the one being interviewed here but um but i but i would say like to your point uh, something like that is so cost prohibitive uh for anyone looking to um you know for 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 anyone looking to kind of build up uh, a minority party um that again it's just another way that that money sort of protects it building on what we said you know i know we talked a little bit about gerrymandering but your opinion is that resolving issues and gerrymandering aren't going to solve the problem alone. Oh no. I that's yeah. again that's where I I think I'm I'm uh, distinct from a lot of political scientists who seem to want to argue that gerrymandering is the problem and and we're doing what we can to measure it even going out of our way to measure it in a way that the Supreme Court will be happy about mm-hmm. which unfortunately seemed to go nowhere. Um <laughs> But but they the argument, if you look at it at, at the at the research, is here's your evidence of gerrymandering and it's bad. And oh yeah, we saw some stuff earlier, but that's not the same thing. And my looking at the data, uh, going through it, is to say yes, gerrymandering is bad and it's a problem. But it is just one of a bunch of different ways that having first past the post can bias a system. Yeah. And that you can you can have and this was it's happened in the US, but it's really happened much more often in the UK and in, in Canada, where you'd have uh the people would come out and they would vote for one party and then and then the other party would wind up winning a majority of votes just because of the way the 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 votes are distri- distributed, right? Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of ways. The fact that Democrats are much more concentrated in urban areas right now is really working against the Democratic Party. And so, you know, there's, there's lots of different ways. I mean, one of them, uh, this, is, this is something I got some funding from MIT uh, to look at that I'm looking at now is to say the, the argument or the, the theory is it is that that the one of the things affecting this is is turnout. In other words, what happens is if you take first past the post system, 
you can okay so there you are and you're you're playing tricks to keep people from the polls it has a compounding effect if you're using first past the post and the reason it has a compounding effect is if if it's they're all wind up being within a handful of districts you can flip those districts in your favor and get a much bigger impact in other words voter suppression is and i'm talking pure strategy mm -hmm. pure strategy is a better strategy to follow in a first past the post system than in a proportional representation system because a proportional representation system, you knock off a few percents of the vote, well, you're going to knock off a few percent of the seats, and, and that's about it. Whereas uh -huh. with first past the post, if it starts being in certain key districts, people don't show up to vote for whatever reason, including if they make it difficult for you to vote. What will happen is you wind up flipping those districts, and then the numbers – basically build up into into the that party's favor in the favor of the one who's been suppressing the vote so effectively if i'm trying to gerrymander a district on the sly i might build out a district that's let's say 50 50 in terms of partisan uh you know partisan registration but for the opposition party has a particularly low turnout rate and so, or a lower turnout rate. So effectively, I'm creating the illusion of fairness when in actuality, I know that the people who wouldn't vote for me are going, aren't going to turn out in the first place. Is that right? That's, I mean, that's right. I, I don't think that they, okay. act, no, no, you're not wrong. I don't yeah. think that they, they, they think of it quite, well, they, they measure everything. So yeah. they probably have a pretty good chance of who is and who isn't uh, uh, voting. But it's, it, it just means that though, if you have that 50-50 district, so mm -hmm. let's say you have 30 districts that are 50-50, yeah. right? Uh, and then what you do is, you know, which is not a large number, but it's kind of where we are politically now. But and then what happens is in those districts, you make it really hard for, for some people to vote, right? Mm -hmm. The opposition to vote. You make it so that, oh, gee whiz, it turns out we only could put one polling place here. So sad for you, you'll have to wait in line for six hours be before mm -hmm. you can vote. The, the reason that that winds up, you know, this kind of focused, geographically focused strategy works is because of the districts. You flip those small number of districts that might be enough for you to win control over the House of Representatives or your state legislature, right? Got, and got so, so if you think about it, all because everything is based on the geographical distribution of, of who votes mm – -hmm. The, this system can be biased in in lots of different ways. So it's not just like, okay, we've solved gerrymandering, you know, uh, wonderful, all problems are solved, we're back to a, a wonderful democracy. It's like, no, this, you know, it's it, this is what they thought in the 60s. Oh, we finally get it so it's equal number of uh, districts and, hey, we've passed the Voting Rights Act, you know, done and done. And, you know, and then it just became, well, we just found a new way of, of getting around it again. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. proportional, represent see, proportional representation does, does more than just add more parties. It defends the system in so many ways that yep. people aren't acknowledging. It's that much better.
it's way better. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I'll give you one more, which comes back to what you were talking about, is that with proportional representation, you wind up with some form of multi-party democracy. You have multi-party democracy. People have to compromise on the top. They, it doesn't, the, the, this vitriol uh, stops working because mm-hmm. if you're being really aggressive towards the other side, guess what? You've just, because you're making them look bad, but you're making yourself look bad, which means you've just added support to a smaller party that's kind of like you, but not completely. I don't think I've ever said this on this podcast, but when I started this, it actually started two years ago, and it was a project I was working on on campaign finance reform. And I did a ton of research into democracies that have particularly high levels of trust and high levels of satisfaction. And the ones I landed on that were comparable to the U.S. in terms of you know, size of economy, size of population, and so on, were all proportional systems. And oddly enough, their campaign finance laws don't differ a ton from ours. The only key difference is that in other countries, there's no explicit right to free speech. So even though like Germany, which is a liberal democracy, can say, no, that's political speech. You can't put that on the air. Whereas that's just not a bridge I think anyone in the United States wants to cross. And and it seemed to me at that point in time that the way our democracy, the way our two-party bias um, ultimately built a structural advantage to the two major parties meant it was Number one, like you said, the vitriol was in, was was built into the system because that's how you get votes. But number two, it is a lot easier to pay off two parties than it is five. Yeah, you know, and see a return on investment. Well, well, also think of it that way. It's let me follow that the the, the whole payoff issue. If yeah. if you're let's say you have a a in our system, let's say okay, your your investors, you want the government to do certain things for you. You know, it, it becomes easier with this system because, yeah, it's not just that you're paying off two people. If you're doing that, so let's say, and that becomes policies that deep down people don't like. You know, the yeah. investors like it, people don't like it. Yeah. Um, if you have a multi-party democracy, if you hand start handing, if, if the major party starts ignoring public wishes, right, mm-hmm. because they're, they're uh, working with some, some major donors, that becomes a, an advantage for the smaller parties that, that are like, okay, they're doing this. Now we're going to go against them for it. So it produces a way of, I, I like the, the term socializing the conflict. It pushes it back into the public. So it makes it, it makes it a better democracy in so many ways, right? It's not just you know, the usual argument is, well, if you're multi-party democracy, it represents smaller groups better than ours. We're majoritarian. Well, no, it, on top of that, that's fine. But on top of that, it could produces a structural pressure towards becoming more democratic, towards listening to the public more. Yeah. Right? Because, because you've got four other teams on the field that are looking for any advantage, even those who are or look like they're your friends because ideologically they're similar, they're still still trying to beat you. And Mm -hmm. so the pressure is higher on politicians. And that's what we want. We want them to feel like that that they 
have to follow the public will. They have to compete harder for our votes. And let's, I mean, real clear, if they're competing against five other parties, that's a lot better for us than if they're competing against one other party. Well, yeah. I mean, for all the touting or all the use of the term competition in America and fair competition on the part of our politicians, it's surprising that they're not, I, I should say it's entirely unsurprising that they'd want to immune, they'd want to immunize themselves from the same thing. Right. Um, yeah. And I, so getting into the, the proportional system of representation, um, I know you sort of took a look at proportional representation at both a state level and a federal level. So just to be clear, state level effectively determines the congressional apportionment based on the state vote, whereas right. federal level looks at the entire country. I get, do you have a feeling in an ideal world as to which is preferable? Right. I did this by looking at where the votes were and said, mm -hmm. okay, let's say we actually did have a proportional representation system uh, just based on how people voted right now. And that mm -hmm. doesn't say how they would change vote, but this is the baseline. This is at least a start. This at least we have some evidence of so we can look at it. Well, it turns out, and there's a lot of people that say, and uh, there's a the big constitutional issue here that gets in the way, but they say, oh, it's no big deal. We'll just have proportional representation by state. So if you're living in Massachusetts, you have, I don't know how many um, members of Congress there are from the top of my head, let's say 20. Um, then what happens is, is instead of you going into your individual district, you do a proportional representation system in Massachusetts, and then that those 20 are divvied up. If, if, if a third party gets 15, the, pro the progressives uh, get 15% of the vote, well, then of the seats that, that, that Massachusetts has, 15% of them approximately go to the progressives. Mm -hmm. Turns out even that system doesn't work very well. Turns out that any – and the reason is there's a, there's a whole group of reasons. Uh, but what it does is any time you have any form of, of, of divvying it up by districts, by areas, right, any time you do that, it's going to have some sort of a bias. And, and so the, the idea that – and there's a lot of political scientists who've, who've argued this. Let's just have proportional representation by state. And the, the sad truth is that, that I'm not even sure it's much better, to be honest, based on what I've seen. So at some level, you, you, if, if you're talking House of Representatives, you do have to nationalize it. But also, again, if you're talking about state legislatures, that's a little bit easier. I mean, you can, you know, that's state law, and there's nothing stopping them from, from creating a more proportional system. Okay. Uh, federal level, you know, you're going to the courts. That one is so going to the courts if anyone tried that. Yeah, well, I think, and and I do think, I I think that would be the the, the big challenge in in my mind is that you know really taking away the the state's ability to apportion its own districts would would require a it, it's a big boulder to push. It it does seem though as if there's room to go state by state and implement it, and while it'd have bias, I'd I'd imagine it's preferable to the system we have now. Um, 
and and in again as i've thought through this topic really the the model i've looked at is the german model where effectively you have popular vote effectively deciding the winner and the term you use which i like is compensatory seats which kind of even out that state's congressional delegation so again if we take Massachusetts, for example, where 20% of the population votes Republican, but the entire congressional delegation is Democrat. Well, then you'd have a situation in where, uh, where Democrats may win the plurality in uh, the majority of di- or in every district, but that amount is evened out by taking away a couple of Democrats and adding Republicans where the Republicans are fairly strong. And is that in line with the system you'd say is feasible or am I, am I off base there? No, no, that's, that's it. I mean, the, 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 uh, I mean, Germany is really the one that invented this. Uh, Mm -hmm. they, and I don't know, it just, it's almost like it just happened. And then everyone was like, wow, that's actually really good. Let's all have these systems that have multiple ways that you can, can elect people. Uh, New Zealand might be the the better example now. I mean, the, Germany invented it, but the German system is a bit complicated. Yeah. New Zealand really isn't. And okay. New Zealand had a system just like ours, and then and it was going in the same direction as as the uh, the Canada and and the UK. Australia system's different, but they're following the same pattern where, where the third parties are rising, but the system was biased. And finally, in New Zealand, they're like, okay, forget it. Let's just change this. And so they went through, they, they created this electoral reform, which has distinguished compensatory seats. So to, to explain it again, basically, it's you have your regular seats exactly the same way that you have right now. So you still have your representative. You still just go in and vote. You still have someone you can call up if, if, if you're not happy about something, right? But what happens is then is that you have these extra seats. And the extra seats are there to correct the bias in the system. Mm-hmm. So what will happen is, and I like your example of, of the 20% Republican or 30% or whatever, mm-hmm. is that, okay, the Republicans got 30% support, and yet they won those seats. That's crazy. Here we have these compensatory seats. We're going to go through the math, and, okay, we're going to correct for the bias in the system by, by getting it so that it becomes more proportional to how people actually voted. Mm-hmm. What that also means is that if you have a third party, they get 10% of the vote. If there's enough seats there, it starts being, okay, well, you know, this third party, well, let's say give them 15%, we'll make it a little bit higher, mm-hmm. then they get a few seats as well. So okay. basically, all you have to do is increase the number of seats and then tack on the compensatory seats, this correct, these correction seats, and you're done. You've, you've solved it. Nothing changes. Nobody, you know, loses, you know, their elections because of it. Nobody is forced into running, you know, a statewide races. Uh, voters don't have to do anything different than they've done before. It just becomes a system that winds up being fair. And that's it, period. It's done. And then, of course, if you did this at the state legislative level, that means, well, you need, you need more chairs, mm-hmm. right? But... But other than that, you have more people. But other than that, there's there's no consequence, really. One other question I have is, you know, when I talk about that minority that voted for, that voted Republican in Massachusetts, 
they did so with the knowledge that they didn't stand a chance of having that vote count because there's just they just do not have uh, can, cannot create significant political opposition in this state. It's been that way for as long as I can remember. Um, is there any evidence that a proportional system would increase voter participation? Because I have to imagine, again, if I'm that Massachusetts Republican, I'm I've got a pretty good incentive right now to stay home. And right. if I know my vote's going to count, I have a pretty good incentive to go out. Is there any evidence of that or, or no? I think that there is. I think that there is. I mean, it's it's um, the proportional representation systems tend to have higher turnout. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the exact reasons why, I'm not sure. I mean, we're very low in terms of turnout levels, very, yeah. very low uh, internationally. And But proportional representation systems seem to create a situation, I mean, where if it's pro- – Look, if it's a proportional representation system, guess what? Your vote counts. Your mm-hmm. vote always counts, right? The only way that you could be in a situation, you know, proportional representation systems, they have it where, where mm-hmm. you have, the party has to get a minimum vote, right? Let's say it's 5%. It's like you either get 5% or you get no seats. Mm-hmm. and Or you have to, there's one or two other hurdles you can jump through, whatever the specifics are. But if you're voting for a party that has like virtually no support, well, they're not going to win any seats uh, because they're not going to meet that threshold. Mm-hmm. Other than that, your vote counts. Yep. Everyone who shows up counts because it pushes the proportionality at a certain level, right? I mean, it, it has to push up to what's there versus one more seat, but it's much more responsive. Yeah, and you got to figure you have a system that's more responsive. Uh, it's it's an incentive to show up, and that's an that's a good incentive to have. So so then to sum it up, you know, proportional representation takes care of vitriol, uh, takes care of the issue of let's call it corruption. You know, the influence money has over our politics um, encourages voter participation. And in an ideal scenario, this would be on a federal level, but it seems like the easier legal hurdle to cross is really to do it state by state. Does that kind of yeah, sum it up? Yeah, kind of sum it up. Um, yeah. It's proportional representation has, uh, has, I mean, the usual argument is it's better at representing smaller groups. This mm-hmm. is the, the, the old debate of we have a majoritarian system. We don't, we just don't represent. If you're from a really small group, we're not going to represent you because we make it into whoever's a majority wins. And then proportional, it's, oh, but what we do is we, we, we represent, we have smaller parties that represent your interest. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's almost... You know, I'm not saying that's a bad thing for for sure, but but is not even the most important thing about proportional representation. Proportional mm-hmm. representation increases the competition among political parties mm-hmm. in a way that forces them to listen to the public more. It okay. which is where your corruption concept comes in. It's yep. the it's it's the it produces that pressure, but it also produces pressure for them to uh, – for the politicians to compromise with each other, to make policy. There's no, there's no such thing as, as we're going to block everything in the Senate and nothing that the president wants is going to go through, period, because we're just waiting to knock 
knock this person off so that we can take charge. That mm-hmm. doesn't work in proportional representation. Because okay. if you do that, you're not necessarily just hurting the other side. You're hurting other people who can take your votes away. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It, it, it also eliminates this whole issue of, of bias where smaller groups can wind up with bigger representation and large groups of people can be completely shut out of the system. Mm-hmm. And so it has a whole set of reasons why it's a much, much better system. So then that only leads to the question, okay, how do we get there? And yep. the getting there is pretty tough. Mm. But, yeah. but this to me is, is the key. And this is – and, and thinking long term. And this is, the, this is the other thing. I think that and, – and political scientists can fall – you know, into this problem too, which is, you know, we're always thinking in terms of the next election, but you got to build political systems to survive mm-hmm. long run. You got to stop thinking in terms of, of, of the next election necessarily. You got to think of, okay, the next 200 years, 300 years, right? You think like an engineer, how do you keep the system from breaking? Mm-hmm. Right? You gotta build it that way, because one of the other things about uh, first past the post that we didn't even talk about is that what could happen, because the system can be so biased, is that even with let's say a barely a majority vote, not even a majority vote, you could have a single party skyrocket into power. Right? They could. It could be if. All it has to do is if the vote distinction geographically is flat, right? So mm-hmm. it's one party has 5% more than the other party all across the country. You could have a situation where suddenly that party has, has a huge amount of power in one election. Now, the fact that they have a huge power in one election doesn't necessarily mean that they're not going to undermine uh, the democratic process. But it certainly opens the opportunity, right? Yes, yes. And, it, uh, and, and I don't think anybody, a Republican, Democrat or otherwise, is, is really hopeful for that. Um, this, this actually brings me to my my last question, which Before is... Before you do the last question, oh, go on, though, let me go just on. jump in. Yeah, let me please. just jump in one point. What I just described for you mm-hmm. is what happened in Hungary 10 years ago, which is why it's an authoritarian regime right now. God, This is it. It's the... Now, Hungary wasn't the full first past the post, but it was a kind of a semi-version of it. God, Literally, God. with 50% of the vote, the Fides, the, the party that runs it right now, the one that's working to undermine the European Union, that that's you know working to undermine democratic policy, you know the 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 and and uh, U.S. long term U.S. policies, mm-hmm. literally fifty three percent of the vote, they won ninety eight percent of the seats. And then they had the system where, okay, there were other ways of voting, but they put them over two-thirds percent, and they just rewrote the Constitution. And there's now no way to get rid of these people. And and this, to me, is the canary in the coal mine. This is the, wait a minute, that's a structural problem, right? That's the, the brakes not working. 
right? Yeah. So you got to think about this. You got to, it's, it's not enough because I think we were like, oh, you know, you read back 10, 20, oh, you know, everything is fine because in American history, these things have never happened. Oh, in America, they've always had compromise, always. In, but you can't think in terms of, you have to think in larger terms, right? Mm-hmm. You have to think that the system has to be built to survive long run. I'm sorry I just jumped in right before your last question. No, that's that had to be thrown uh, in. Uh, no, absolutely. And to be honest, that adds way more urgency to this than I think even I placed on it. And I've been harping on this for a while. Um, because the reality is, too, in this country, uh, and possibly different than Hungary, the media landscape is such that the majority of people consume information that really just reinforces their existing worldview. And and for that matter, is very largely based on the talking points of both major parties. And so the reality is, is we already have a system of effective party control of the media. It's just we have two parties vying for power. And if that were to tilt in the direction, like you say, and you can look state by state level and see that happen. I mean, Ohio and North Carolina are two examples of states where uh, somewhere around the, in the neighborhood of 25% of the voters are effectively not heard uh, by virtue of the way districts are carved. It's not really that un, un, unreasonable to assume that that 75% bias couldn't happen uh, nationwide. Right. And I think more importantly, you only need, what is it, 66 to get a constitutional amendment. So you've, you, you get the White House, you get the House, you get the Senate, you've got yourselves a blank check effectively. Right. A small majority can put a party into overwhelming power. Wow. And then once you do that, they are capable of it. And you have to. Isn't this the, the whole point of James Madison? Mm-hmm. No faction should be too powerful. You have no. to break them up. That's the point. It's because they're all dangerous. You Ugh. like them. You don't like them. They're all dangerous. They, yep. Nobody should have too much power. And by the way, mm-hmm. um, and, and this is something that I'm working on with, 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 with another author, you could actually say that this is what happened in the South and, and related to Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. Jim Crow was basically, or the, the, the South during Jim Crow was an authoritarian regime, uh, a regional authoritarian regime, but an authoritarian regime. Now, why did it happen? Well, it started with you have the Civil War, right? Then you have the be- very early beginning of suppression of the, the African-American vote. Yeah. Once you have that, it starts becoming the only party is the Democrats, Right. Mm-hmm. So, and the, the, the Republicans were still getting votes. There, there was the third party movements were actually stronger there than the rest of the country. And to the getting to the point where, where, where the populist party was actually a real threat to the Democrats' uh, uh, hold of power. Mm. So they clamped down. And again, they had just enough bias just enough to push them to the point where they could change everything and they did right so they did it and then what happened was until the civil rights movement you had a one-party state throughout this entire region where i live now uh throughout the south uh where there was no democracy where it was only the Democrats. And, and so, you know, to sit and say, well, you know, you know, this couldn't happen because things are always great in America. You know, you have to think about it. It's, if the mechanic is telling you your brakes are failing, mm. 
That doesn't mean you're going to get into an accident the next time you're in the car. Mm-hmm. It just means the probabilities are higher. And yep. if you keep going long enough, you know, you get a little bit tipsy after work, doesn't mean you're going to kill somebody. Yes. You do it a hundred times, right? Yes. That's yes. the way to look at it. And, and so we have, so in my mind, it's, you know, the more I look at it, the, the less I like it, the more uh, this worries me. The last question I saved for you was, you know, one of the things you mentioned in your article is that such a change would be difficult to achieve without extraordinary historical situations. It's 2020 now. Do you think this year would qualify? Oh, I think I think the problem with this year is that is the um, wow the level at which which this is just keeps getting worse mm-hmm. and keeps getting more intense. And I think what's going on right now is that is that uh, Democrats and a lot of independents, I think, are are ready to to throw out. Uh, Donald Trump and will do anything they possibly can mm-hmm. to do so. I think that there are there are Donald Trump supporters who who you know love him and want him to keep in, but you know what? They're they're in the minority. Mm. But um, so I think that that is going to be the focus. But you know things are changing so fast. This is this is if if I would not want to be a Republican politician right now. This is this is. These are circumstances that are are bad for the Republican Party and keep getting worse. Yeah. And so now we don't know what's going to happen in in five months, but we might really see a significant change in in the the party structures after all of this is over. You know, will this be enough to force the kind of change that I'm talking about? Well, the 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 problem is that is is that. I don't think anybody's seeing this as as the most immediate. They're they're not looking at it and saying, you know, proportional representation. The the most that they're saying is proportional representation has these nice things, but it's asking a lot and we've got other things to do. And mm-hmm. and my point is is you know, you you have to secure the system. The the problems with what we've got right now are much more serious than they were. But you know what? If you have have a landslide democratic victory, it is going to it is going to be their percent of seats is going to be higher than the percent of votes. Mm. And it might be a lot higher. You know, mm. and I guess this also gets to the last point yeah. is maybe the w- one saving grace on this, which is an which hopefully can pressurize people into taking some action is that you don't actually know who it's going to benefit when, right? You Mm -hmm. don't know this can be random, right? Mm -hmm. Right now we see a Republican bias, but, but get an election where, where the numbers go up on the democratic side, it can suddenly be the Democrats have, have so much power that they can just push stuff through. Yeah. So, so it's this is something where where one should see it as well. We all have something to benefit from from trying to make the system more proportional because we're benefiting today. Let's say we might not be benefiting tomorrow. Yeah. Right? So, so you know, I, I know that Democrats and Republicans want to do what they can to keep the third parties out, but I I think that they'd be better off 
shifting the system a bit so that it's more uh, more proportional, less bias. Now, data folks are generally pretty measured in their words, so I did not expect Bernie to drop the bomb he did, but this show is always full of surprises. Now, as he mentioned, the first past the post system we have here in the United States is part of the reason our country is structurally biased against third parties, but it's the costs of getting a voice in America's privatized media apparatus that prevent the presence of minority parties you see in other first past the post systems, such as the UK and Canada. Now, what's more, With the media now fragmented along partisan lines, they often act more like the propaganda arm for the party they lean to than the counterweight to them they were designed to be. And Bernie warned how a slight tilt in the popular vote could result in one-party rule and an erosion of democracy in the United States. And that cuts both ways, because with the level of satisfaction with government in general so high, It's only a matter of time before popular sentiment swings so hard against the incumbent party that that happens. Now, one final thought. While the above prediction has yet to happen in the country as a whole, it already exists on the state level. And many districts, mine included, don't have a general election, only a primary. And in these districts, the party sets the rules, not the people. If you go back to the last episode with Helen Kiokas, you'll see that in New Jersey as well. It needs to end. Now, I have a write-up of today's episode and a link to Bernie's resources on YDHTY.com, so be sure to check it out. Now, getting back to the subject of hyperpartisan media, we probably all have that old friend from college or high school who you keep in touch with on Facebook and since, I don't know, around maybe 2016, November-ish, has shared nothing but their really strong opinions of, on the president there. Just me? Anyway, I invited one of mine to join me as the final guest in our first year of YDHTY and learn more about the making of a Facebook madman. As always, people sound crazy until you know how they got there. As always, music courtesy of Quellertac. YDHTY is produced in North Carolina by the big Gino, Jason19. Until the next... This is Dan Sally. Adios.